O God, our Heavenly Father, who didst manifest Thy love by sending Thine only begotten Son into the world, that all might live through Him, pour Thy Spirit upon Thy church, that it may fulfill His command to preach the gospel to every creature. Send forth, we beseech Thee, laborers into Thy harvest. Make them glad with abundance of increase. And hasten the time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in, and all Israel shall be saved. Through the same Thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 10 today, verses 5 and following. We started this section of Matthew's Gospel last week, and we're going to continue it today. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read through verses 5 through 16. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. For truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, we started looking at this um, last week. And we pointed out that it is God's joy to use people. Some people have argued that if you subscribe to Reformed theology, if you subscribe to the idea that God is sovereign over all things and over the lives of every individual, then that sort of makes evangelism unimportant. Because if God is going to save somebody, He's going to save them anyway. We pointed out last week that that's not necessarily the case. God is going to save them, but He is not necessarily going to save them anyway. God chooses to work through instruments, and He chooses to work through people as those instruments. Uh, we certainly see that here. Uh, there is a segue. Jesus um, is sending out the twelve. In the section that we looked at before this, the chapter begins... With the naming of the twelve disciples, you can see it there in chapter 10, beginning at verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And then immediately you get to verse 5, and these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them preach the gospel. So God uses people, and He can use all sorts of people. That's obvious from that list of the apostles when we looked at them. That was anything but a remarkable crew of men. Uh, Some of them were quite unremarkable. 
but God used them in a, an amazing way to do remarkable things. We started last week by looking at the fact that Jesus focuses on five things as he sends out the disciples for the first time. This, incidentally, is not what we would call the Great Commission. The Great Commission doesn't come to the end of Jesus' ministry. This is just sort of a a first, what we would call short-term mission. You know, there's some people that are called to the mission field as a lifelong vocation. There are other people who are called to short-term missions. They may go to Honduras or to the Dominican Republic or someplace like that for a couple of weeks, and they'll do wonderful Christian work down there, but then they come back home. That's what we call short-term missions. Well, that is exactly what Jesus was doing on this occasion with the 12 apostles. He had already set them an example of what they were to do. Now he was going to send them off to let them try their hand at it for a bit. But the real work would come later. But this was the first time that he sent them off. And he gave them some instructions. First of all, he told them where they should go. He said they would go nowhere among the Gentiles... They were to enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. We already looked at that. He told them the message they were to proclaim, how they were to think about material needs, because obviously they were going to have needs as they went out. Who was going to pay for all of this? Where were they going to find food? Where would they find lodging and so forth? You know, as Americans, we are very practical people. These are the sorts of things that we're very concerned about, aren't we? You've got to pay the bills what they should expect from their audience, and the kind of character they should display. So the first thing was, of course, where they should go. And we already looked at this, as I said. They were not to go to the Samaritans. They were not to go to the Gentiles. They were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, we asked the question, why the restriction? Didn't the Lord have a heart for Samaritans? Well, it's obvious that he did. Uh, He ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Didn't he have a heart for the Gentiles? Obviously, even in the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a light, to enlighten the Gentiles and to be the glory. So it is true that Jesus did have a heart for Samaritans and for Gentiles. We said that there are probably two reasons, however, why Jesus focused almost exclusively on the lost sheep of Israel. One was because this was familiar territory. These men were going off for the first time by themselves. If you're going to evangelize the world, you need to start somewhere. It was probably best for them to learn how to minister among their own people. You know, how do you learn to ride a bike? Oftentimes with training wheels first. It's not until you you get the sense of balance that you actually take the training wheels off. And furthermore, it is true, I think, that charity does begin at home. It certainly doesn't stay at home. But if you're not capable of ministering or sharing or, or preaching the gospel to those who are close by, how are you ever going to do it effectively to those who are far away? So I think that's one reason for the restriction. However, the other reason for the restriction is that Israel, as we said, had been chosen for a purpose. Israel had been chosen to be a light to enlighten the nations. It was through Israel that the prophets had come, and through Israel that the covenant had come, and through Israel uh, that the great message of Jesus Christ had come. And so he says, focus on Israel, that Israel will not lose its place in the world. And we took a look at that. We walked through Romans and we said how remarkable it is that what God has done is he had chosen, in order to save all of mankind, he had chosen a particular man, Abraham. 
And from that particular man, Abraham, he chose a particular nation, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham being more numerous than the stars in the heaven or the sand on the beach. And it was from this nation that God produced the covenants and the promises and so forth, and ultimately the Savior of the world. And yet that Savior of the world came to his own people, but his own people received him not. They rejected him. And so what happened? The message went out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles accepted the message, but Paul says in Romans what's going to happen is that ultimately, as the Gentiles come in in greater and greater numbers and begin to enjoy the benefits of the covenant community, the benefits that were originally given to Israel, Israel was going to be revoked to jealousy, and the Israelites in the last would come back to the fold in great number. And we said, who but God could think of a plan of salvation like that? quite remarkable. So I think that's the reason for the restriction. That's where they were to go. Well, now we're going to take a look at the message they were called to preach. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we've already looked at this. But it's important that we recognize again that this whole theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is central to an understanding of the New Testament. Now, sometimes people have made a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. There's no distinction. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. So, when you think of the kingdom of heaven, that's not something that's up there and the kingdom of God that is something that has come down in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are precisely the same thing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is wherever the king resides. And when Jesus Christ came and resided here on earth, the kingdom had arrived. That's why John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, as we've already seen, said that it was time for people to repent. Why? Because he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the reason people need to repent. That's the reason people need to have a change of mind and as a consequence of that, a change of course, a course correction. Because he said the king had come on the scene. The kingdom had arrived. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 10 and flip back to Matthew chapter 5 for just a minute. One of the things you'll notice is that this theme of the kingdom was not only something that John the Baptist talked about, but Jesus talked about it at great length. Here we have the most famous sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. We read this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It goes on and on. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. This theme of the kingdom of heaven is woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You might say that the Sermon on the Mount is really all about the kingdom of heaven. It's not only the focus of the ministry of John the Baptist, it's not only the focus of the mission of the Sermon on the Mount or the message of the Sermon on the Mount, it is also the focus of so many of Jesus' parables. Jesus was a storyteller. I think that's one of the reasons he was so engaging. I'm one of those people that's very critical of religious movies. I don't like to watch religious movies. Some people do, but I don't. I don't like historical movies most of the time either because 
being somebody who's really interested in history, I find that they don't get the details just right. And if one little detail is wrong for me, ruins the whole movie. And most of the time when I see Jesus depicted in religious films, it's this sort of weak, effeminate, pusillanimous sort of Jesus, and I have no interest in that whatsoever. Because if Jesus was anything at all, he was nothing like that. I mean, first of all, he worked in a carpenter shop, so he probably was pretty burly and muscular. Furthermore, they traveled up and down the length and breadth of Israel for three years, and they did that by foot. So that must have, you know, made them a sort of a, a hardy crowd as, as well. And furthermore, we're told that when, when people came to hear Jesus, they came in droves. That was one of the things that really irritated the scribes and the Pharisees. We're told that when Jesus taught, he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you listen to Jesus' stories, they are engaging. They, they are pictures, powerful pictures. I mean, you've got pictures of camels creeping through the eye of a needle. I mean, Jesus was a wonderful teacher. He was an engaging teacher. He was a fascinating figure. And that's why people were drawn to him. So you sort of have to have that realistic picture in your mind, not this sort of picture that you sometimes get in a Raphael painting that may be beautiful artwork, but not particularly accurate biblically when it comes to the person of Jesus. So let's take a look at a few of Jesus' parables, some of these stories that he told. Matthew chapter 13, it's going to be some time before we actually get there. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 13, we've got a host of parables that we can take a look at just briefly. Now, this is a familiar one, the parable of the sower. I prefer the title, the parable of the soils, because if you read it closely, you quickly discover that it's really not about the ability of the sower or even the power of the seed. It's really about the fertile nature of the soil. But because Jesus called it the parable of the sower, who am I to dispute? But here it is. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty. Some 30, he who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the what? The kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So that whole parable, you see, is is about what? It's about the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. Jesus goes on to explain it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So it's pretty clear that the parable of the sower is all about the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. Take a look at the next parable. He put before them another parable, verse 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven 
may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put to them another parable. And we go on. Parable of the treasure. Are you with me? Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Or verse 45, the parable of the great pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The parable of the net, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the seed and gathered fish of every kind. Over and over again, Jesus, you see, is emphasizing what? The kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you before, this is the message that ultimately, ultimately got the early disciples in so much trouble. When we think of the Christian gospel, the Christian good news, what we normally think of is the message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins, and that is true. There's no question that that is a part of the gospel. But you need to understand that if you went out and preached that, In the ancient world, most people would not have been deeply offended by it. It certainly wouldn't have gotten you killed. But if you went out into the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, in which the Apostle Paul, for example, was ministering, and you preached the message that a new kingdom had come, now that's going to get you in trouble. That's going to get you in trouble with Roman authorities. That's going to get you crucified. You'll recall that when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, The Roman prefect, the question that was put to him is this. The people say that you are a king. What do you say? See, that was the real question. When Pontius Pilate came out and he washed his hands and he said to the crowds, I find no fault with this man. Take him and deal with him yourself. They replied, he claims to be a king and we have no king but Caesar. See, that was the problem. That's when Pontius Pilate knew he he had a real issue on his hands because it was his responsibility to uphold Caesar and the Roman law. And he could not allow another king to appear on the scene. It's interesting to note also that when Pontius Pilate had Jesus crucified on that main thoroughfare going out of Jerusalem, we're told that he had a placard placed over Jesus' head in three languages, which read what? This is the king of the Jews. And the people objected. They said, no, no, no. Say this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So you need to understand that this whole theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is absolutely central. It's there when John the Baptist appears on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. It's there when the Magi come to worship the Christ child. We have come in search of the new king of the Jews. That's why Herod became so upset. It's there at the beginning of Jesus' own ministry when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's woven through all of his parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a pearl of great value. And it should be part of our proclamation as well. And that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. He said, as you go out, the message you need to proclaim is that there is a new king. A new king, a new sovereign has come to earth. And he has set up a new kingdom. And we've talked about this before. Kings don't run for re-election. Kings rule by divine right. This is something that's a little foreign to us as Americans. We are accustomed to being able to boot our politicians out if we don't necessarily like what they're doing. But you can't do that with a king, you see. And this was especially true in the ancient world where kings did not sign away their rights like King John did with the Magna Carta. Kings were absolute rulers. They ruled by divine right. So when Jesus said, go out and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come, he said, tell them that a new sovereign has come, a new king has come. He has established a new kingdom on earth. And how do you become a subject of this new king? How do you get to share in this new kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of hope, things that the world desperately needs? He says, tell them that they need to repent and believe the good news. There is a sense in which that's what we need to do today. We certainly need to tell people that Jesus Christ came into the world to save them from their sins. And you're certainly going to hear about that during the course of Holy Week. But I think one of the often neglected aspects of the Christian gospel is this lordship of Jesus Christ. We're living in a time in which many people are willing to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they do not want Jesus Christ to command their lives. They don't want Jesus Christ to be sovereign over every aspect of their lives. There are some aspects of their lives that they refuse to have Christ be a part of. Somebody once said, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then Jesus Christ is not Lord at all. So I think that's one of the things that we have to do. As I pointed out to you last week, we are sometimes so interested, so interested in making the gospel appealing to people, as though the gospel doesn't have the power to be appealing on its own. But we want to make it so appealing as though we're trying to sell a product that what do we do? We only accentuate the positive elements. I mean, that's how you sell potato chips. That's how you sell automobiles. That's how you sell magazines. That's how you sell anything at all. That's what marketing is all about. And so we think when it comes to the gospel, we have to accentuate the positive elements. And there are positive elements, but there are some elements of the gospel. But let's be honest with it, we're not going to like We don't want somebody else to be in charge of our lives. We don't want somebody else telling us what to do. We want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to be the masters of our own fate. But Jesus said this is a part of the gospel message. The lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's the message that they were supposed to proclaim. Now as they went out, what were the practical issues? 
Well, one of the things that Jesus said was that they were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And he says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. It's interesting to note that later on when Jesus sends his disciples out, he actually tells them to take certain things with them. On one occasion, he actually told them to take a sword. On this occasion, he tells them to take absolutely nothing with them. Why is that? I think he was testing their faith. I think he was trying to teach them that they could not be self-reliant. That if you're engaged in gospel ministry, you have to trust God for everything. Not just for the results, but for everything. Otherwise, there comes a point where you can claim credit for yourself. You know, that's one of the dangers of Christian ministry. The minute that great things begin to happen, you begin to think to yourself, great things are happening because I'm a great person. I mean, great day. Look, look how far we've come. And you get puffed up. And I can tell you from personal experience, God has an uncanny way of bringing you down the minute you get puffed up. And I think that's part of what God is doing here. He says, don't worry about money because the gospel is free. You received it freely, you are to give it freely. Somebody once said that the English love the gospel because they can write about it. He said the Welsh love the gospel because they can sing about it. The Irish love the gospel because they can fight about it. And the Scots love the gospel because it's free. (laughs) And we all know that parsimony is Scots. Anything that's free is best. Well, that's true. The, The gospel is free. The disciples had received it freely, this wonderful message. These insights had been given to them, and they were to give it freely. This is one of the reasons I have so much trouble with some of these ministers on television who have these jetliners and these, you know, it's just, it's sad. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the worker's not worth his wage. We're going to get to that in just a minute. So if anybody's thinking, well, we just need to dock the rector's salary because of what he's saying up there, I've got news for you. But what I am telling you is that it's unfortunate that the gospel is not supposed to be entered into for the purpose of becoming wealthy. If that's your motivation for doing it, you've missed the point. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, Jesus was the king of glory. And yet, he had not a place to even lay his head. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to sleep. So he's trying to teach his disciples to be reliant on God. Now that, again, is something that is so countercultural to us because particularly the generation that's in this room today, we have been taught to be self-reliant. Do it yourself. 
Don't trust on anybody else. Don't count on anybody else. Do it yourself. And what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples here was that they were not to trust in themselves. They could not trust themselves even in their best moments. They were to trust in God for all things. You know, somebody came up to me just a little while ago, a little while ago, I mean a couple of weeks ago, and they asked me, if this lawsuit goes south, what are you going to do in terms of housing? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And they said, well, don't you have a plan? And I said, frankly, I don't. (laughs) And they said, why not? I said, because I've got too much else to do, to be perfectly honest with you. Don't worry about that right now. So what are you going to do? I said, I suppose the Lord's just going to have to provide. And I trust that he will. Now, I may go from living in a four-story south of Broad House to living in a double-wide, but I trust that God will provide. (laughs) This is what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples, because if you learn to trust him in the small things you'll develop the ability to trust him in the large things. And that's what he was trying to teach the disciples on this particular occasion. He was saying, go out. This is a short-term mission. I'm not sending you out for the rest of your lives. I'm sending you out on short-term mission. Go. Here's just a select group of people. Preach to this select group of people. Tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, Don't worry about pay. Give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, nor new two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. The laborer will be provided for. This brings us to a very important point. If mission is to be done, and if God uses people to produce the results then it is up to God's people to support God's ministers. It's as simple as that. It is up to the people, the congregation, to support the work of the church. If not us, then who? Now, I did not bring this up here today as an example. But since it's here... This is a great example of what we're talking about. We launched a campaign this past Sunday, this 198 to be great. As it turns out, we have been in debt for some time. Now, some people came up to me and asked me how we got into debt. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care. It it, it didn't happen when I was here. So it's not my job. My job is to get us out of debt. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in how we got there. I'm interested in how we get out of it. But the reality is, we're all members of this congregation. If, if not us, then, then who? You say, well, it's the responsibility of the vestry. No, it's not the responsibility of the vestry. It's partially their responsibility. But it's partially the responsibility of every individual member of the congregation. See, we have a responsibility to support God's ministry. Let me tell you something. The work that is done at St. Philip's is not the work of the rector or the work of the staff or the work of the vestry. It is the work of God. 
God working through us to make a difference, a profound difference in the world, in this community of Charleston, in the state of South Carolina, in America, and beyond to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is saying, trust me. If you trust me, you will discover that I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'll tell you a little personal story. Uh, This is when I really learned about faith giving. This is a little stewardship talk. Uh, I was the rector um, in Beaufort, and um, we had uh, developed a very um, exciting plan for the new year. We were going to launch a new school down there in Beaufort, which is up and running now and going great guns. And um, the vestry proposed a budget, and we submitted it to the finance committee. And the finance committee came back and said, "Uh uh-uh, you've got to cut. So it went back to the finance, um, back to the vestry. And the vestry debated and said, sent it back to the finance committee and said, we can't cut anything. And the chairman of the finance committee at the time said, well, you have to. And the vestry said, well, we've been praying about this and we just don't feel that we, we should do that. And the finance committee said, well, you're $100,000 shy. We've got all the pledges in, and we operated on pledges in that parish. They said, the pledges are in. We don't expect any more. And you're talking about $100,000. No. And the vestry prayed about it. I sort of just sort of took a back seat here and watched this for a little while, a tennis match going back and forth, praying all along. And uh, at one point, um, the vestry decided that they were going to step out in faith. That's what they called it. They were going to step out in faith. And they were going to pass that budget with a $100,000 deficit. Now, it had been the tradition in that parish never to pass anything but a balanced budget. So this caused a huge controversy. The uh, the, uh, head of the finance committee said, I'm quitting. And I had to go over and sit down with him and say, I don't want you to quit. Just hang in there with me. Let's just give these guys a chance. And it was a lot of this negotiation back and forth. You'd be surprised at what a rector has to do. But we're having that conversation, and we passed the budget. And we went the whole way through the year, right on target as far as the budget is concerned, except we had a $100,000 deficit. And we were coming to the end of the year, and I could see the chairman of the finance committee over there just licking his chops. He was ready to say, I told you so. And on Christmas Eve, I kid you not, Christmas Eve, somebody came in and handed the treasurer a check for $100,000. Now you talk about coming in under the wire. And the only reason that he came in on the 24th, he said he really wanted to come in on the 31st, but the office was closing for the week following Christmas. So that was the end of the year as far as we were concerned. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you run a deficit budget. That would be the last thing I would suggest to you at this point. What I am saying to you, though, is that when you pray about things and you realize God's calling you to do something, and yet you feel as though there's nothing there, you have to operate on the basis of what? Faith. Faith. 
And that's really where it matters, you see. No. It's an interesting story, and I don't want to give it away. I can't tell you who the person was, but I'll give, it to, I'll give this much to you. He was a person who was relatively new to the parish. He had come within the past eight months, and he'd heard about the vision for the school and became so excited, and he was a wealthy individual, and just off the top of his head, this is what he decided to do. A lot of people, you know, at the end of the year want to give money and, and get tax benefits as a result of that, and that's what he was doing, and this is where he decided to give his money this year. He had normally given it to the hospital foundation, but this year he decided to write it to us. <laughs> well, I don't know if they died at the hospital, but they went to heaven when they did, so... The point is, this is what faith is, folks. Faith really is when you have nothing left and you have no choice but to trust God. Just another addendum to that. So a couple of years later, um, well, the vestry decided, hey, this, this faith thing is important. We need to trust God more. So... They put in this element in the, in the budget called a faith element. And each year we got, you know, we were trying to do more in terms of the community. We had started a school. We were running the Mere Anglicanism Conference. We started a free medical clinic, the only one on that side of the Broad River. All of these things were being done, but we had this faith element. Now, it was a modest amount. It was something like $20,000 one year or $30,000 another year. But... I began to wonder about that because one year we again had a very ambitious plan to start this free medical clinic and we were operating, you know, at a deficit, but, you know, just about a $30,000 deficit and everybody felt good about that. But I noticed that we had this, what they called a slush fund over here that had almost $50,000 in reserve. And I said, I don't mind if you use reserves, if that's what you want to do. But let's not call anything. You can't say that you're operating on faith when what? You've got money in the bank. That, that's not really faith. I mean, how much faith do you need? You, you don't need even the faith of a mustard seed because if you're short, you've already got it. See, that's not faith. Faith is when you have nothing. But you trust that the one who can provide all things will do so and abundantly. Now, that does not mean, do not take away from this that I'm suggesting that we do not use good business sense, that we are not good stewards of the resources and the finances that have been given to us. We absolutely must be. But what I am saying is that there are those times in your life when you have nowhere to turn but to God. And that's where faith really matters. And faith is not just hope against hope, it's trust. These were common fisher folk that Jesus was sending out. He was sending them out to preach the gospel, and he was saying, I don't want you to take anything. And they're wondering to themselves, look, how are we going to survive? It's not a matter of whether we're going to be able to go to the theater one night. It's a question of, how are we going to survive? And Jesus said, you don't worry about that. 
God's people will provide for God's ministers. They had to learn to trust the Lord, and we have to learn to trust the Lord as well. Now, here is the next thing. What should they expect? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, I'm sending you out. And he says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. For truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now by virtue of the fact that Jesus says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet. By virtue of the fact that Jesus says that, that is an indicator to us that there would be some who would not. And that's something that we need to remember. The place where we begin to share the gospel is right close to home. That's what the disciples did. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. There are people close to you, close to your family, neighbors perhaps, with whom you can share the gospel. You do not have to go overseas. Sometimes all you have to do is cross your lawn. And you can share the gospel. You are to give it freely because you received it freely. If you're nervous or anxious, trust the Lord will provide. Not only for your material needs but also for these other needs, the ability to share the gospel in a way that is effective. Remember, God just wants you to be faithful. The success part is up to Him. But when you go, what should you expect? Well, you need to accept the fact that some will possibly reject the gospel. Take a look at John chapter 15 for just a minute. This is what Jesus said to his disciples at the end, when he was really getting ready to send them off for the rest of their lives. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we have to realize that when we go out and share the gospel with all the best interests, that doesn't necessarily guarantee any kind of success in this world. The world is hostile to Jesus Christ. The world is hostile to the gospel. That is why Jesus Christ came into the world, because the world had become darkened. His own people rejected him. So we should not expect that we're automatically going to be hailed or welcomed. Now somebody might say, well, if I'm not going to be welcomed, then I'm not going to do it. That's not the point. This is where it goes back to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why do we do this in the first place? Well, there are a number of motivating factors. One is the love of the lost. If you have any of the heart of Jesus in you, you have to have a heart for the lost. But I would say the most basic reason for us to go out and do this is because Jesus commands it. He commands us to share the gospel. And if Jesus is not merely the Savior, but actually the Lord of your life, then this is what we are commanded to do as Christian people, to share the gospel. 
Now, somebody might say, well, it's better to serve by example. And that's oftentimes true, but that can be a cop-out. I'll just be a nice person. But I'm not going to actually share the good news. I hate to tell you this, but there are a lot of moral atheists in the world. If it was all about being a good person, we wouldn't need a savior. Because it's not a question of being good. It's a question of being how good. It's a question about being as good as God himself. So we need to recognize some will indeed reject the gospel. What were the disciples supposed to do when that happened? They were to shake the dust from their feet as a testimony against that town. Let me show you a very practical example of that. Turn to Acts chapter 13. That's a very important section of the book of Acts, as you know. Uh, It's the beginning of what I call the missionary era. Some say the missionary era began in Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost occurred and the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and Peter spoke. But I think the real missionary era begins in Acts chapter 13 with that church in Antioch. It was here that the Holy Spirit spoke to the believers and they were told to set aside Barnabas and Saul, who of course was the Apostle Paul, and send them off. And that was the first of Paul's missionary journeys. And we're told that what they did was that they traveled down from Antioch to the coast to a place called Seleucia. They took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus. They preached the gospel on the Isle of Cyprus. And they went back up to the continent to a place called Pisidian Antioch. And they went into the city there and they preached the good news. Now, initially, at least, when they went into Pisidian Antioch, the people became very excited by what they heard. In fact, they became so excited about what Paul was preaching that look at verse 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. I always like to describe this section as every preacher's dream, every preacher's wife's nightmare. Uh, When church ended, the people actually followed them home. They said, we want to hear more about this. We've never heard anything about this in our lives. Tell us more. Tell us more. You know, preachers don't get that much. Most of the time what we get is... Not here. Thanks. Thanks be to God. But they actually followed them home. So there there was this initial enthusiasm. But look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So here's what happened. Paul and Barnabas went to Pisidian Antioch. They went first where? To the synagogue, to the lost sheep of Israel, just what Jesus had told the twelve. They went in there, they shared the gospel with the Jews. The Jews were so enthusiastic about the message that they followed them home. And before you know it, the word spreads to everybody in the community, Jew and Gentile alike, so that the next Sabbath, the synagogue is filled. Now, you understand that in ancient Judaism, it was acceptable for Gentiles to attend the synagogue. They were not barred from the synagogue. Now, there were certain sections of the temple in Jerusalem they could not enter, but they could go to the synagogue and they could listen in the back to the lessons. They couldn't necessarily participate in the liturgy, but they could listen in the back. They were called God-fearers. The hope is that they would become a convert. 
So we're told that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the God, the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But, and here's the critical verse, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. Now there's a perfect example of what you see happening when Christian mission takes place. This is what the 12 could expect, and Jesus is saying this is what we can expect. We will oftentimes go, we will share the gospel, there will be an initial excitement. This was often the case when Paul went into a new area, because this was a novel teaching, this was unique. But then when people actually begin to wrestle with the actual details of the gospel, what this really meant for their lives, they became offended by it. And there would be division in the community between those who accepted it and those who rejected it. On the part of those who rejected it, there was what? Persecution. And when they were persecuted, what did the apostles do? They brushed the dust off their feet. This is what Jesus talked about when he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) So we need to realize the fact that there are going to be times when we go out and share the gospel. The gospel has the potential to divide. And there will be some who will reject the message. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to go. We're still supposed to go. Out of the love of Christ, and because we are Christ's disciples, and we're commanded to go. But we do need to recognize that there will be times when people will not like what we have to say. But after we proclaim the gospel, we've spoken the truth in love, If our message is rejected, then we are free to turn and walk away. In other words, you don't have to keep grinding at that stone over and over and over again. If you've done the best that you can do, sometimes the only thing you can do, sometimes the best thing you can do is leave them to the Lord and move on to the next place. And that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Now, Jesus makes it very clear, going back to Matthew, That's a serious thing. The fact that you're shaking your dust from your feet is a serious thing because what you're basically doing is you're leaving them to their own fate. What did the Lord say? He said it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for one of those cities or those people in that day. I'm sure you're all familiar with what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down judgment on those two wicked cities and they were brought to nothing. So our job is to go out and preach the gospel because the stakes are extremely high. And we would be in the same state had someone not brought the gospel to us. And so that's what we do. That's what we should expect. Now, what's the character the disciple is to display? Well, let's go back again to Matthew 
And let's take a look at what Jesus says. He says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of incentive here, is there? People are likely to reject your message. People are going to persecute you. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. But Jesus said, you are sheep nevertheless, which is to say, as we go out and we preach the gospel, we are to be peaceful about it. We are not to coerce people. We are not to threaten people. We are not to frighten people. We are to be peaceful people. I've said this is the primary difference between Christianity and Islam. Our charge is to convert the unconverted by peaceful means. Their charge is to convert the unconverted by peaceful means, if possible, by any means, if necessary. It is one of the great marks against the church in history that there have been times when we have not always acted like sheep, more like wolves. The most obvious example, of course, would be something like the Spanish Inquisition, where people were forced or tortured into some sort of a confession. That is not what the church is supposed to do. Jesus said, we are to do it peacefully. But he says, understand the world. We are to go as peaceful creatures. But he says, while you are to be as peaceful as doves, you are to be what? As wise as serpents. Wise as serpents. What does it mean to be wise as serpents? The word there is phronimos. It really means awareness. You are to be aware as you go off to preach the gospel, to share the good news with this world that desperately needs to hear it. As you are to give it freely, be aware that the world is what it is. Don't have any illusions about the world or any illusions about human beings. There's a great example of this in John chapter 2. And the example is Jesus. That's why it's a particularly good example. In John chapter 2, verses 23 and following, listen to this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, another translation puts it in a way that I think is even more powerful. But Jesus, for his part, entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of men. In other words, don't be easily swayed. Don't be easily taken in. That's not to say that you don't trust people, but don't be too trusting. Recognize that people are what people are. They're broken and fallen people. That's why they need the gospel. I think one of the signs of spiritual growth is when you not only don't trust others too much, but you also begin to realize you can't trust yourself too much. So Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep. Be peaceful, but be aware, be circumspect. Recognize that people are fickle. It's interesting to note in that passage from John, we're told that Jesus had been performing miracles and signs, and the people believed in his name because of what they saw. Not because of what he said, but because of what they saw. They were enthralled by the miracles. 
But later on in the Gospel of John, we are told that after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and crossed to the other side of the lake, and the people followed him to the other side, and he saw them coming in droves, he said to them, I tell you the truth, you are seeking me because you ate your fill in the fish of the loaves, but do not strive for the bread that perishes. I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that section called the Bread of Life Discourse says that the disciples, not the twelve, but his disciples, many of them took offense at this and they turned back and followed him no more. They said, this is a hard saying. In other words, we believe in you as long as you're feeding us physically, satisfying our every desire, but if anything more is desired of us, well, that's just too hard for us. And they turned back and they followed him no more. Well, Jesus understood that's the way people are. People are fickle. You ever known pickle people? The, the, the people's minds who change with the weather? We've had a lot of changeable weather around Charleston these last few days. There are people's minds that are just like that. And you need to be prepared for that. That's all that Jesus is saying. That doesn't mean that you don't like those people, that you don't try to minister to those people, but be aware that that's the way it is. So be wise. But nevertheless, he says, be as innocent as doves. As innocent as doves. I think the best example of this is Nathanael in John chapter 1. When Nathanael was brought to Jesus... Jesus looked up and he said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. What a wonderful description. Here comes one in whom there is no guile. We are to go out and we are to share the gospel with the world because God commands us to do it. We are to do it boldly. We are to do it confidently. We are to trust God for everything that we need, and we are to trust God for the results. If we're not making any progress in one place, if people are rejecting the message, okay, shake the dust off your feet, but that doesn't mean you stop the work. You simply move on, what? To the next place and share the gospel there. And wherever you go, go as sheep, knowing that there will be wolves out there who will be seeking to devour you, but nevertheless, you go peacefully. But be aware of the world. Be circumspect, be aware, but make sure that you are guileless. Make sure that you are the kind of person that what you see is what you get. Be genuine. What Jesus is doing here, of course, is setting the disciples an example of himself of one who went out and and preached the gospel and asked nothing in return. What did Jesus ever ask from anybody? Jesus spent all those years freely giving, giving of himself. There were times when he was absolutely exhausted, and he went to the other side of the lake to mourn the loss of John the Baptist. And when he got to the other side of the lake, there were the people coming in droves, and he looked at them, and he had... Mercy, compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what we're supposed to do. That's how we're supposed to look at the world. That's what Jesus 
And yes, there were times when he was mistreated. There were times when he was rejected. There were times when he was falsely accused. And there are going to be times when we are falsely accused. There are going to be times when we are rejected, mistreated. In the case of Jesus, in the case of Christians in other parts of the world, he was even killed. But on the cross, what were his final words? They weren't words of hatred or judgment. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know, it's interesting. Good Friday is fast approaching. You can preach a whole series on just the miracles of Good Friday. Because there were a number of miracles that took place on Good Friday. You know that the, the great earthquake took place and the rocks were split and so forth and the dead came out of the tombs and all that. But you know what my favorite miracle is? It's the Roman centurion. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the Roman soldier looked up and said, Surely this was the Son of God. For who can love like that? As he's hanging there on the cross, his body bruised and beaten, people down there at the foot of the cross, gambling for his only garment left on earth. And he's so beaten as beyond recognition, he looks down at those who were mistreating him at that very moment, at those who were railing and mocking him. Come down from the cross if you are who you say you are. And he looks at them and he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And all of a sudden, a spark was lit in that centurion's heart. He said, surely this is the Son of God for who could love like that? See, that's how you change the world. (laughs) That's what Jesus was sending those 12 out to do. That's what he's sending us out to do. Now you say, well, it's kind of sweet, but it's a little discouraging. But we have to remember, that's not the end of the story. There is something beyond the cross, isn't there? There is the hope of Easter. There is the hope that one day when we behold the resurrected King, we will hear Him with outstretched arms, arms that were once stretched out on the cross, but now stretched out and welcome to us, say as our King, well done, good and faithful servant. I can promise you, whatever praise you will ever receive in your life, No words of praise will ever fill your heart to the point of breaking more than those words from Jesus himself looking into your eyes and saying to you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. God grant that as we go out like those 12, we may be just as Jesus intended them to be. And when at length he calls us home, we can hear those words spoken to us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gospel ministry. It is a ministry that is sometimes hard, but it is a ministry that we have by your grace and by your mercy. It is the greatest privilege in the world. There are many other things that we can do that are of consequence here on earth, but there's only one work that has consequence for eternity, and that is to lead another person into a saving relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Grant us the courage, the wherewithal, the desire to do it so that one day we can hear those words from your lips. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.